and um, and Frank were were believers. They 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 knew Jesus as their Savior. He was their anchor and their hope. And we know that they're with Christ. And we just thank you that they have that living hope. We ask now, God, as we open up your word together, that you would give us insight into these truths. You write them upon our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We looked at verse 1 last week. And we saw the, the riches, the, the foundational riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. As being united with Christ, Paul says there's this encouragement. We talked about some of the encouragement that comes from being united with Christ. He said there's this, this consolation, this comfort from his love. There's this common sharing of the Holy Spirit that, that we've been blessed with through his gracious ministry in our hearts and lives. That, that the God who has begun a good work in our midst through the proclamation of the gospel is is strengthening and encouraging us through his affection and mercy. So Paul laid all of these foundational truths down before he's going to go into what he says in verses 2, 3, and 4. Now we need to remember that every letter in the New Testament was written because of a problem. All right, and That was uh, whether Paul, James, John, doesn't matter. Every letter started, started as dealing with an issue. Sometimes it was a small issue. Sometimes it was a, a, a need, a needed, uh, a needed, some needed theological instruction, maybe that, that Paul was wanting to add to their knowledge. Um, sometimes it's, it's theological misunderstanding. Uh, sometimes, and, and it was often the case, there was interpersonal conflict. There were issues arising from believers not walking together in unity. And that's what's happening here in Philippi to some degree or another. And, and Paul is not going to just tell them, hey, knock it off, get along. He knows that that kind of instruction doesn't work. It doesn't work for us. It wasn't going to work for the Philippians. So he rooted it in, in who they are in Christ. Verse 1 provides the springboard for what he's about to say in verses 2 through 4. And then next week we look at 5 through 11 where we're going to see the example of Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives them a foundation, their, their strength, their encouragement, to, to be able to make this commitment to walk together with a humble heart, side by side for the sake of the gospel. And then he's going to point them to Jesus, which is what he always does. And so as we think about the life of unity, the first thing that we see is the expression of unity. We see the expression of unity. So if you're taking notes... You see here in, in verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul's, it's almost a side note, but Paul's main verb of this, this whole ver, four-verse paragraph here is, is the verb, make my joy complete. Paul did not base his joy on whether or not the Philippians were getting along. But you can see what what, what brought Paul excitement, what brought him this deep joy was seeing believers walking together in unity. We said this last week, but sometimes we tie our joy to really silly and superficial things. Paul's joy is tied in to the believers walking together in unity. And he's not saying, I can't be happy, I can't be joyful if you don't get along. But what he's saying is, you're, you're going to allow me to experience a greater fullness of the joy of the Lord when you do walk in obedience to him. And so the first thing 
that we see under the expression of joy from verse 2 is that the, the Philippians had a shared purpose. They were to have a shared purpose. Now, th- th- there's depending on how you look at this structure here, verse 2, there could be four different things that, that Paul says uh, that they're supposed to do. I just kind of summarize them in two because a couple of them have the same, same verb. The first and last one have the same verb. And that is they were supposed to think the same way. That, that word is used twice here. Have their thinking aligned with one another. Now, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily like that translation very well. I don't think it's communicating the idea of the passage very well. Because we're not all supposed to think the same. If you've been married for more than five minutes, you know that this is impossible. You don't think the same way. What he's getting at, though, is he says, I want, I want you to have... Uh, not, 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 I'm not saying that or Paul's saying... You don't have to agree on everything. You don't have to have the exact same thoughts. But rather live lives that are united around a common purpose. That is the gospel. That is you're you're walking in agreement in lockstep with this united focus on the proclamation of the gospel. With lives that are centered in the gospel. It means that we're not all running around coming up with our own ideas of the Christian life and the the purpose of the church and earth. We, We look at God's word and we work together for the sake of of the gospel. He uses a phrase in this verse. He says, united in spirit. United in spirit. That that word literally means one-souled. Being of one soul together. Our English expression, soulmates, captures this wonderful Greek word well. It's as if Paul is saying, It's not enough to agree with each other theologically. God actually calls you to care for each other deeply in a love that binds your souls together so strongly that differences of perspectives cannot pull you apart. Paul is calling us to walk in lockstep, in unison. To not be, you know, we've we've all seen seen, um, a game of tug of war. And, and, and each side, especially if you're, I don't know, boys love this game. It's a guy game, I think, a little bit. But, and, and, you know, you watch them on the school ground or you watch them in maybe gym class when they're younger. And they all want to get the strongest kids on their team because you're interested in winning, right? You're interested in pulling them across the line. That's the goal. And the other side has the same goal. And you're pulling away from each other. Too often, that's, that's the church. That we're, we're pulling in opposite directions. And Paul here is telling us that we need to get on the same side of the rope and pull together. That's what he's, he's, he's talking about with these different verbs. To, to think the same way or have the same mind. Have the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. I want to make note of that, that phrase, a shared love. If you're taking notes, the second one is a shared love. Having the same love. What he means by same love is that I I think he's talking about the love he mentioned in verse 1. The consolation, the comfort of love that we have from Jesus Christ is flowing into us. That is, as we reflect on our union with Christ, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, we, we are filled up with that love. And he says, you know what? That person sitting next to you that you're having trouble getting along with, they're recipients of that same love. They're, they're, they're common receivers of the love of Jesus. Jesus does not like me better than you. 
He does not like you better than that person you're having trouble getting along with. He has shared his love. We have this common love that has brought us together. We receive it together from Christ and we're called to share it together with one another. This love begins when we see others' needs as more important than my own. And that's where he's going to go in verses 3 and 4. But before we get there, we need to look briefly at the enemies of unity. Actually, we're going to spend more than just a moment here. Because it, this, this, was, this was getting in the way of them getting along well. This was getting in the way of their gospel-centric oneness. It was impacting their mission. Enough so that Paul heard about it and decided to write about it. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. He says, let none of your activities, none of your life that you're living, none of your ministry, none of your church activity, none of your husband and wife ministry, your, your parenting, let none of it be done from selfish ambition or conceit. What's he getting at? These are the enemies of unity. The first one is that of self-interest. Selfish ambition. Some of your translations say rivalry. This is that, that mentality that reveals a concern for self. Looking out for number one. This is easy to spot in other people, but not always so much in ourselves. It's this me first way of thinking. Augustine, the church father, and later on Martin Luther used a Latin phrase to describe our sinfulness, especially as it relates to our pride here. And it was, it was a Latin phrase, incurvitus in se. It means curved in on oneself. What a poignant way, what a, what a, what a word picture. That, that, that by nature, because of the sinfulness that we're born with, and that sinful inclination that still remains with us even after we've been saved, the Bible says that we have this tendency to be curved in on ourselves. That is, that this, this me-centric focus in life. And Paul says, let nothing be done with a self-interested mindset. The second one he mentions is conceit. It's in the King James translated vainglory. I've put pride here. But I, I, I like that old word vainglory because he, he captures the essence of the the, the, the... the early translators of the King James captured the essence here. It's this empty glory that we seek. At the root of all of this is pride. It's pride. In fact, pride is at the root, really pride is at the root of all sin. It's the mother of all sins. Jonathan Edwards said it's the worst viper that's in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. James 3.16, we're reminded in James 3.16, we're reminded, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. Pride 
is an, an insidious sin that, that, that sort of makes itself at home in our hearts and, and gives birth to other sin. But pride, as we mentioned, is, it's a little easier to see in other people than it is ourselves. What, what does pride look like? What does it look like if I'm struggling with pride? Well, Edwards, Edwards wrote down seven symptoms. I didn't put them on the screen, but I'm just going to go through them briefly. My goal here is, is not to skew negative, but my heartbeat behind this is that we might be more aware of pride that creeps up in our hearts. The first symptom Edward wrote down is fault-finding. That mentality that is always on the lookout, that, that, that is always on the lookout for the way people have stumbled. You always feel like you, you can't pass up an opportunity to correct someone. You ever find yourself doing that? Your, your kids could come home from school, and you could have this great this list of all these things they've done well, that they were, they did, you know, they were obedient and doing their chores. They were, they were kind to one another. They helped set the table or whatever it is. But yeah, but then there was this one thing, this one thing that they said to their brother, or this one attitude of snark that they took with you, and and we can hone in on that. Aha, gotcha. Sometimes we're we're on the lookout for that gotcha moment. There could be all kinds of reasons to encourage someone, all kinds of reasons to say, "Wow, this is an amazing." This is amazing what you've done, but we hone in on the one thing that's off. Sort of like um, if you're a fan of Christmas Vacation when Clark gets all the lights lit on the house and then his father-in-law is like, yeah, those ones aren't twinkling though. It's, it's that mentality. It's like everything could be great, but you're going to hone in on the one thing that's wrong. That's a symptom of pride, Edward says. The second thing he mentions is a harsh spirit. A harsh spirit. Edwards writes, Christians who are but fellow worms ought at least to treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ treats them. Sometimes we don't do a very good job of giving people the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes we have this bit of pride that's crouching behind our sarcasm that could even leave a permanent scowl on our face. We walk around irritated, frustrated, judging others. That's a result of pride. Thirdly, Edwards mentions, mentions superficiality. When pride lives in our hearts, we're far more concerned with others' perceptions of us than the reality of our hearts. And so we begin to go through the sort of the motions. We, we, we're living, wondering what other people are thinking about us. Rather than living before Christ and honoring Him first and foremost, we're, we're, we have this shallow Christianity because it's, it's based on the opinions of others. That's our motivation, to look good in their eyes. The fourth thing Edward mentions as a symptom of pride is defensiveness. Defensiveness. He says, for the humble Christian, the more the world is against him, the more silent and still he will be. Unless it's in his prayer closet, then there he will not be still. When others come to us with correction, how do we respond? Is it with defensiveness? I, I, I recognize some of these symptoms in my own heart, and so it's not really fun walking through these with you. True humility is not knocked off balance when we when we hear the correction of others. 
worst case scenario, they're, they're way off base and they're wrong and that's fine. Best case scenario, they're bringing to us some much needed word from God that, about a blind spot that we're not seeing and it's an act of God's grace to help us get on track. Either way, it shouldn't dislodge us. But when we get defensive, when we're quick to strike back, when we're quick to say, yeah, but, it's a result of pride. The fifth one Edwards mentions is a presumption before God. A presumption before God. Humility approaches God with the humble assurance that's been granted to us in Christ Jesus. Yes, Scripture tells us we can come boldly before the throne room of grace, but, but we need to remember as we come, we're not God. We need to remember that, that we're the sinners who have been saved by grace. We're the creature, and He is the creator. And pride can begin to take a posture of this, you owe me, Lord. not sufficiently paying attention to his sovereignty and to who he is as almighty God. The sixth one that Edwards points out is being desperate for attention. Deep down, many of us are concerned that we really don't matter. And so we have to convince others around us that we do. That results in talking a lot about ourselves, telling stories that make us look good, maybe even altering the details slightly to make ourselves look even better. Way back in 1991, for some of us, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but it really really was quite a long time ago, um, Madonna was interviewed by Vanity Fair. And she said this. She said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible feel, fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. How about that for a bleak outlook? But you know, sometimes we as believers can absorb the same mentality. We're constantly trying to prove ourselves, maybe to God, maybe to some imaginary person, maybe to even someone who has passed away and is no longer in our life, but we can hear their, their, their voice of disapproval still chirping in our ears. And so we push and we press on to, to impress, to get the attention that we feel like we deserve. The Bible says that that's pride. And then finally, Edwards points out, number seven, neglecting others. Neglecting others. And it's what Paul is saying here. There was this, this me-first mentality that was beginning to crop up among some of the believers there. And it was neglecting the care of other people. We need to... To be mindful, this is something that, that we, we come before God and we say, search my heart, oh God. As, as we read through these seven, I know I didn't have them on the screen, but as you heard those seven, there's none of you who said, ooh, I'm doing that and, and I, I like that about myself. 
I, I love getting attention. I'm constantly vying for attention. And I'm glad that I'm that way. If you're a follower of Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, each of those, something resonated. And, and, and maybe God pointed out a couple of those. And you're like, ooh, I don't like that. That's God's faithfulness in saying, all right, we got a, we got a pride issue to deal with. Let's, let's, let's not shove it to the wayside. Let, let's not forget about it, ignore it, cover it up. But let's bring it out in the light and bring confession before God and say, God, I, I am struggling with pride. I didn't see it, but by your grace, you're revealing this to me. And he's faithful to forgive us. When we... So this is, this, is, this is why I spent a whole message on verse 1. Because when we root ourselves in the finished work of Jesus Christ, when we see ourselves as in Him, all of a sudden, pride begins to dissipate. Because it was God that did the work bringing me into the family. It's God sustaining me, and it's God doing anything and everything that's good through me. And pride begins to, to get, to kind of just crumble apart because we have no interest in glorifying ourselves. The more we know Jesus and the more time we spend in, in, in fellowship and abiding in him, the, the more Jesus-centered we are and the more we come to this key of unity, and that is a spirit of humility. The key to unity is humility. And I want us to just finish with this this week, and I know we spent a good chunk of the time on the negative, on, on becoming aware of our pride. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Um, but we're going to look more at the example of humility next week, and, and, and we'll get a chance to flesh it out further. But I just want to say a couple of things. Paul says here in the middle of verse 3, In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. I cannot tell you how radical that is. If you've grown up in the church, if you've heard this verse over and over and over again, and you, you've heard the teachings of Jesus, you've heard him say, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that, 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 that may be, have become background noise for you. And you're just used to this. But this is crazy. This is radical right here. He says, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. You understand that that flies against the messages that we hear all over in this world. Everywhere. This is not the message that you hear out of Hollywood or on social media. And even from a lot of Christians. We're... we're we're easily swayed by this look out for number one mentality. But this lines up with, with what the rest of the scriptures teach. Paul said in Galatians 6.2, carry one another's burdens. In this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 12.10, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. 1 Corinthians 10.24, no one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. This is not just one little verse that Paul accidentally slipped in there, and he's like, I didn't really mean that, and you won't find it anywhere in the rest of the New Testament. Sorry for confusing you there. He says, no, 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 this is the mentality. This is the way to joy. And, and we don't get this, because this is not, this is, this is not intuitive. This is not the way that we come out of the womb thinking. 
We want what we want, and we want to look out for ourselves. And Jesus came and completely upset all this thinking when he said, listen, the first will be last, but if you want to be first, you got to be last. That does not make sense. The math doesn't add up. But this is the way of the cross. This is the way of Jesus. Humility, this idea of self-forgetfulness, is the way that Jesus has called us to live. It's the way he modeled for us in his life and in his death. John Stott has said, in every aspect of the Christian life, pride is our greatest foe and humility our greatest ally. Humility is the foundation for all unity. If I'm more concerned about building you up, if I'm more concerned about your needs, could you imagine if all of us thought like that all the time? Could you imagine what it would do to a church, to a community? where we were exalting the needs of others above our own? In our first reaction, at least maybe it's mine because of my pride, I'm like, well, what about me, though? Like, does that mean I don't, I don't I get nothing? Like, I mean, do I even take time to eat? Is that selfishness? Paul's not being, saying to be ridiculous, but he's saying you, you do care about yourself. And so what I want you to do is take that care about yourself, direct it to others, and, and take it to the next level. I love what C.S. Lewis said about humility. He said, don't imagine that if you, really, if you meet a really humble man, he'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He'll not be thinking about humility. In fact, he'll not be thinking about himself at all. What a description. How do we get there? We'll look at that more next week, but let me just leave you with this. Let me leave you with this one encouragement for fighting pride and cultivating humility. And that's this. Reflect on the wonder of the cross. Turn your eyes on Jesus. That's where Paul's going to go. That's exactly where he's going to go with this beautiful hymn in verses 5 through 11. Look to Jesus. It's impossible to be proud in the shadow of the cross. It's impossible to be proud in the shadow of the cross. When you behold Jesus, the one who poured his life out for you, not only in his 33 years on earth, but who gave his very lifeblood, who died on your behalf, who looked at sinners who were spitting on him and mocking him and beating him, and he said, I love you. I love you this much. I love you enough to give my life so that I could be with you forever. I love you and long to give you life. When we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, there's no room for pride. Lewis goes on to say, God and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will in fact be humble delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all that silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. (laughs) 
Nothing destroys boasting like the cross. John Owen has said, fill your affections with the cross of Christ, that there may be no room for sin. My brothers and sisters, let's ask God to search our hearts, to root out pride, and then turn our eyes on Jesus and what he's accomplished on the cross for us so that we might cultivate a spirit of humility which will build unity among God's people. I want to pray for us, but if you need prayer for any reason, there'll be a few of us down front here who would love to pray with you. Even if you just want to linger in your seat after we dismiss or, or come down and pray by yourself, you're more than welcome to do that. We'd love for you to take some time to spend alone with the Lord and ask Him to, to make these truths come alive to your heart. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you. We thank you for revealing the way to unity. If we believe Jesus' prayer in John 17, unity is of utmost priority upon the heart of our Savior. Jesus, you prayed that we would be one, even as you and the Father are one. Help us to understand that and then live it out. God, root out pride in our hearts. Show us where these symptoms exist and, and, and may, we, may we humbly confess them before you. Inviting other believers into our life to, to point these out to us. And Father, fix our eyes on Jesus so that our hearts might be inclined to move towards others. We're not going to be humble because we make this resolution this morning to be more humble. We're going to be humble by situating ourselves near to the cross. I pray, God, that Jesus is our our constant companion. That you would give us a spirit of dependence, this, this idea of abiding. Marcus shared with us, remaining under the cross. So that you would cultivate humility in our hearts and a unity in your church. Now the shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep, who calls you by name, who never abandons his flock or allows his sheep to perish, preserve you in all the attacks of the enemy, hold you steady in all your sorrows, and keep you faithful in all your temptations. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.